0: all right ladies and gentlemen we're doing it welcome to the ready ready podcast episode one i'm your host george croft and today we are going to be looking into a lot of things, uh, but we're starting out with composting here, because as you guys know, if you if you listen to our little intro thing, this show is about learning skills and figuring out how to do stuff for ourselves, so that we can be a little bit more self-sufficient, a little more ready for whatever life is going to throw at us. And the first project I'm going to tackle here is, well, the idea was to just start a little a little garden here in my apartment complex. And I have basically like a four by six foot space to work with here. But the more I got to thinking about it, the more I got, you know, I decided that we really need to start with composting because if you're going to learn about this stuff, it's like, it's one thing to just go buy a bag of potting soil and plant some stuff in it. But it's another thing to understand why that potting soil is important and why you can't just stick stuff straight in the ground. So, uh, so yeah, so, and the reason I kind of, Wanted to go after that too, because I know there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of misconceptions around composting and there's a lot of like conflicting information out there. I actually, in, in doing research for this episode, I came across stuff that I had like, I had held as being true that turns out not to be true. And I'm glad I actually like found that out. So, uh, so, okay. So starting out, like the reason why I think this stuff is important is because, if we're going to extrapolate these skills out, right? Like if you, if you know how to manage your soil in a two by or in a four by six box, then the same, the same stuff applies no matter how much property you eventually are are working with. And the reason why it's important is because we are as humans, we are capable of really screwing that up and we have in the past. And so some, some history here to kind of, to kind of bring it all together and why I wanted to do an episode on soil and composting and we'll touch on fertilizers a little bit, stuff like that is because the, the ramifications for doing this wrong and mistreating your soil plus a little bit of bad luck. That's how you end up with the dust bowl, which any, anybody who pays attention to history knows like the, the dust bowl was like, it's, it's hard to even call it a natural disaster it was exacerbated by a natural disaster, but back in the 19, you know, late twenties, early thirties, where basically people had just moved across the plains and, you know, at the, you know, the end of the 19th century there, people were just grabbing up land. And then the idea was, you know, to live on your own and farm and do your own stuff. Well, then sort of like industrial agriculture kind of came along and nobody was paying attention to how these people were actually going about, farming this stuff because like that's sort of, it was sort of the birth of big agriculture, right? Like people realized, Oh, I could take this 10 acre field, plow it all into rows and raise just corn. And I can take that and sell it and make a profit. So they like, it's, it's sort of like mono cropping, I think is what they call it now. And so the idea was they were producing way more than any one family could, could consume, but they were doing it, you know, doing it to, to make a profit as they do now. But the way like sort of conventional wisdom up to that point was plow your fields, plant your stuff. And this was kind of, this was before fertilizers even. And then like it was sort of known back then about crop rotating, but it wasn't for the reasons that it is now. Like crop rotations back in the day were done because certain things grow better in certain seasons. But at the end of that, you'd plow it up and start over. And what happens is anytime you plow up your soil you're completely disturbing. So like the difference between dirt and soil, right? So dirt is just dirt. There's nothing going on in it. It's just a dry, you know, clay or sandy loam or like all these other soil types. There's there's nothing going on in there. That's dirt. Soil is packed full of life. It's full of bacteria, microbes and fungus and bugs and all this stuff. And it's all it's like a, it's sort of like picture it like an engine that's running all the time. It's life, like eating stuff, dying, decaying, some of that stuff, eating that. And it's all, it's just this little engine of nutrients doing their little cycle of life before plants are even involved. This is just on a microbiological level. Things are living, dying, eating, you know, shitting in the soil. And that's like, that's what makes it awesome for plants. Right? So... Anytime you till that, you're ripping that up out of the ground. And it's not like that process just keeps going because part of it is like it's got to stay covered. And and the like the combination of aerobic and anaerobic environments down there are really important for what chemical processes are going on and what like biologicals can live in your soil, like based on how much oxygen they're exposed to. Or lack there you know, or how much nitrogen or all that stuff, so it gets to this really nice balance where things are decaying and being eaten at whatever rate, and they're using up the proper amount of oxygen and that that's sort of like your sweet spot of soil that's cranking out plants and life and stuff. But when you till that up, you're exposing it to way more sunlight than it's supposed to. you're exposing it to fresh air, you're ripping apart you know the the fungal. Strands and stuff that are all tying this stuff together, and you're basically completely interrupting that whole system that takes a long time to get going. I think I read somewhere once that like a cubic yard of soil takes like 10,000 years to like generate in nature. Now, I don't know if that's true, I should probably look that up before I spout that off, but it is extremely difficult. And for the most part, once topsoil is lost, it's gone. Like it takes so much, it takes so little work to kill it and so much work to bring it back that in large part once the topsoil is gone it's gone. So what happened during the dust bowl is you had the entire midwest full of people every season tilling up their fields and back planting with more stuff and they and they and this was kind of before fertilizers were even a thing. So like a lot of the time they're not replacing those nutrients you take out of the ground with anything because normally Like the plant cycle is like, you've got your soil doing its thing. A plant grows out of that soil, taking some of those nutrients, does its thing, whatever plants have to do, it germinates and casts its seeds to, you know, animals eat it or whatever. And then in combination with that plant dying and then returning to the soil and animals, you know, like eating that and then they're dropping sort of like help with fertilizing the soil. And that whole cycle is returning those nutrients that were taken from the ground in the first place. Like they come back in the form of droppings and and plant matter. But if you grow that plant, pick that plant and take it off somewhere else, those nutrients are gone now. And it happens just a little bit every time. But if you do that over and over and over, you're not only are you like every year, are you tilling up the soil and interrupting that process of like, all the little, you know, the microbiological process that's going on under there. You're also just robbing those nutrients out of there. So it's not like they'll just, you know, it's not like that plant just stays there, decomposes, and we kind of start back from zero. You're removing nutrients and resources from that spot. And they did that to the entire Midwest, which used to be this vast grassland basically. And even grasslands on their own, if you think about like soil and stuff and, and why grass like why the dust bowl never happened when it was just grassland. First of all, grasses are way more drought tolerant than than the crops that people were growing in the Dust Bowl. That's the main thing. Because what happened was in the Dust Bowl, like I said, everybody's tilling their stuff every year and they're shipping those crops away from where they grew them. So the soil nutrients are getting depleted and and the like the soil process is getting interrupted every couple of months, so this topsoil is basically just gone. And then a drought hits. And everything dies like the, like everybody's crops are dying because they didn't have like, this is long before we had tapped into the aquifer. I can't remember the name of that aquifer. It's not the, it's not the O'Clockney. I'll think of that later, but there's a, there's this giant aquifer under the Midwest basically. And they, they had, they were not tapped into that yet. So we didn't have like big, You know, agricultural irrigation systems, yet it was all still kind of dependent on rain in the early, you know, 1920s and 30s. So, anyway, so drought hits, kills everybody's stuff, and then the winds come and the dirt now because it's not soil anymore. They successfully killed all the topsoil pretty much, and so there's nothing holding it down. There's no root systems because they were plowing, there's no like it's not retaining any water because that's the other thing the soil does is it's sort of a sponge. Like it retains water more than like, like in dirt, you pour some water on it. The water's just going to keep sinking through that dirt until it can't go anymore. It's, it's not like dirt's not a great sponge compared to soil, which is getting sucked up by all kinds of organic matter. That's tied in there and suspended in the soil. Right? So there's, there's a certain level of water retention that helps and, The root structures in there keep the soil from just blowing away when the wind shows up. But when it, excuse me, when it dries out and you remove all the nutrients and you expose it all to sunlight and you till it up a couple of times a year and then the wind comes, you get stuff like, uh, I I think there was a report that like dust from Kansas ended up in Washington, D.C., because the winds just come around and and you can find the pictures of the dust bowl disasters man there's just massive sandstorms like it looks like i mean it looks like something out of a movie and and houses are just completely buried in sand and i mean it was just it was an unmitigated disaster and it was all because people were just farming wrong it's like it's like yeah the drought happened but if the drought had happened and people had been farming, you know, in the ways that we know how to do now, the Dust Bowl wouldn't have happened. Like, that wouldn't have been a thing. Uh, anyway, so, and it's, so the, yeah, basically mismanagement of soil. The, the point that I'm trying to get at here is that mismanagement of soil is what led to this giant disaster that is the Dust Bowl. So, the other way that that sort of ties into today's episode, that happening, the Dust Bowl being a thing is what created the, the drive to create what was at the time, they called it the Soil Conservation Service, which uh, was the precursor to today's National Resource Conservation Service. And the, the Soil Conservation Service basically just observed that, you know, the Dust Bowl scenario, and they sort of figured out why that was happening. And they set about educating people across the country on how to not do that again. And, uh, and they've done like, and that's, you know, the NRCS, that's a thing today. Like I, I used to work with an NRCS forester and they like, that's their whole shtick to this day is providing information and resources to people about how to not dick your soils up and how to just, you know, exist sort of harmoniously with the microbial life in your, in your, you know, in your ground. So yeah, I had a little thing pulled up here on the, um, the NRCS. Yeah, it says on April 20th. And this is I'm, I'm reading this from the uh, NR, NRCS.usda.gov. And it says on April 27th, 1935, Congress passed public law 74-46 in which it recognized that, quote, the wastage of soil and moisture resources on farm, grazing and forest lands is a menace to the national welfare And it directed, uh, unquote, and it directed the Secretary of Agriculture to establish the Soil Conservation Service, SCS, as a permanent agency in the USDA. In 1994, Congress changed the SCS's name to the Natural Resource Conservation Service to better reflect the broadened scope of the agency's concerns. Yeah, so to this day, like, if if you're interested in, in farming, gardening, ranching, all that stuff, like, the NRCS has sort of grown to this, like, they have this much broader operating, you know, ethic and they've got tons of resources for people. So they're, they're, they're a good source of help for this sort of thing, but I digress. Um, so yeah, so now what we're going to do here. So what I, what I told you guys, I thought like a, a truth that I had held for a long time that I found out is not true, uh, was that my, I had been told and actually, I'm pretty sure I learned this while working for the Resource Conservation District. I used to work for – it's called a Resource Conservation District, which is basically – they work – it's basically the same job that the NRCS is trying to accomplish. But it's like the local county level of that outreach and, and trying to educate people on on this sort of thing. But I'm pretty sure I picked this information up there. But now I'm I'm not sure. But I used to think that – and it makes sense in my head – Introducing synthetic fertilizers to soil also kills that microbiological life, which made sense to me. And I guess you can overdo it, but apparently it's not, it's not that cut and dry. So, so I found this article, on uh, it says organiclifestyles.tamu.edu, um, and it's under their Frequently Asked Questions page. It says, do, orga- do inorganic fertilizers and other chemical inputs harm soil microbial population? And uh, all right, so this is their response. Quote, frequently we see statements in the lay literature about chemical fertilizers killing soil microbes or worse yet, statements indicating that these management inputs, quote, sterilize the soil. Sent- uh, soils to em- uh, Sterilize the soil, excuse me. Statements such as these should be viewed with much skepticism, exclamation mark. Remember that as we learned in Frequently Asked Question One, see above, the soil can contain tons of microbes. Short of incineration, it is hard to imagine a stress in a soil that would lead to complete extermination of all microbial populations. It is true that some inputs, anhydrous ammonia for example, anhydrous ammonia, cause reductions in microbial numbers in the immediate vicinity of the application. After all, ammonia is a toxic gas. However, it quickly equilibrates with the soil so, uh, with the soil solution in the form of ammonium ions, and the toxicity subsides. Certain pesticides have been shown to cause similar transient reductions in selected microbial population, but remember, in some cases the microbes simply view these chemicals as food and degrade them fairly quickly. Uh, it goes on to explain a little bit more. But basically what it's saying is that the nitrogen that's occurring naturally in soil break, like within the soil, like from breaking down organic matter, those mic, like those organisms can't tell the difference between natural, like natural nitrogen and synthetic nitrogen. So they don't have trouble processing it. It's just that. So in, in some of my other readings, I found that it's basically the upper hand that composting has is that that nitrogen is released slowly and more evenly so you're not like because if you just dump a bunch of nitrogen on something you can actually burn it uh and you can it'll like some stuff turns yellow and it's all like you you can you can really mess up your soil ph levels but you're according to this at least you're not gonna like nuke your soil and have it just completely die from applying fertilizers that being said fertilizer runoff is a whole nother like ball of wax and if you want to look like maybe I should do an episode on that but like and that's part of what led to uh what is it called the NPDS, I think is what it's called I'm not I'm doing this off the cuff here I didn't pull this up at all but it's the national pollutant discharge system I think national NPD yeah national pollutant discharge system I think it's which is which was part of the EPA deal I think and it was where basically you're not just allowed to dump chemical waste into rivers. Cause before that's just kind of what you did. And, but anyway, so now it's like, if you go and look into that stuff, like the amount of fertilizer being used today, especially in like big ag and stuff, the runoff from that is, is causing some serious problems. And that's so, so while it's not nuking the soil necessarily, it's chemical fertilizers are definitely not without sin here. You don't have that problem if you're dealing with naturally occurring topsoil or you know like compost ba- composting is basically just recreating your topsoil through natural processes like you're just all you're doing is piling you know organic matter on itself and letting it break down naturally and then turning it over every once in a while to make sure that it's getting an even amount of decomposition is basically all you're doing um so um let's see here i was going to do a kind of, I was going to go off on a tangent about Alan Savory, but that's kind of, that's not really that real. Alan Savory was a guy who basically came up with this theory that, uh, cause de- it's called desertification, which is where like somehow the balance gets thrown off between what animals are there and the amount of grass that's available and weather and all this stuff. And basically like the amount of animals there just completely moonscape, you know, the, the ground and they take all the nutrients out of it. And they used to think the answer to that was to just remove, you know, big portions of those animals. But now what they're thinking is that actual like dense herds, like how we used to have buffalo in America, sort of perform this like it's not tilling, but it's like they would, like obviously they're, they're you know they you know poop on the ground and all their you know they return nutrients to the soil that way. But then also just the herd density would come along and stomp that stuff into the ground, and it's sort of like a, a certain herd density stomping stuff into the ground at that rate is somehow better than less animals doing that. But I digress. That's, that's not a, that's not really going to fit into what we're kind of trying to talk about here. Cause we're going to run out of time. Um, but um, let's see here. Anyway. Okay. So what the other thing I wanted to do, since we're talking about composting, uh, we've got all this historical tangents sort of out of the way And we're talking, you know, like now that we understand why it's worth composting, um, we're going to talk about how to compost, which really there's a bunch of different ways to do that. And there are a bunch of people that have done lots of YouTube videos and there's tons of resources on composting out there. This is, I'm hopefully the point of this episode is just to sort of, you know, pique your interest in it. And then you can go learn about it from people that actually know what the hell they're talking about. But so I have this book that I think was pu- like the, the first one was published back in like I don't know like the 40s or something. But this version that I have. Let me see here if I can find the copyright date. I think it's the 1960s. Um most recently was 1981. 1981. Well, okay, so this 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 one's from 1981, so it's not as old as I thought. But it's called Back to Basics. It says how to learn and enjoy traditional American skills. And I love this book. Like, this is one of my favorite books. Mostly because it's, like, because it's got pictures, and for people at my reading level, pictures are awesome. But also because it, like, it really illustrates, like, all these crazy skills that, you know, that are would be fantastic to have, but that a lot of people don't anymore. I mean, and, and some of this stuff's kind of outdated. Like, they hit, like, actually the whole, like, they have a whole chapter dedicated to tilling soil, which we just talked about not being like a great thing to do, like especially on a large scale. But anyway, so I'm going to read their little page on, on composting here. This is the art and style or the art and science of soil improvement. Composting is a method of converting garden trash, kitchen straps, and other kitchen scraps, excuse me, and other organic waste into humus a partly decayed form of organic matter that is important. That is an important ingredient of rich soils. There are many variations in composting techniques, but the basic idea is to let the biological action of the bacteria and fungi heat the interior of the compost pile to 150 degrees Fahrenheit, killing weed seeds and disease organisms. The most efficient way to produce compost is in a bin or container to keep the material from spilling out. Cause yeah, you can, you can do this just in a pile on the ground. Uh, Anyway, back to the book. A compost pile is built up like a layer of cake, which each with each layer watered as, as it is completed. Optimum height for a compost pile is about four feet. A lower pile loses too much heat, and a higher one tends to pack down and interfere with the biological action. Okay, so it's saying four feet is the optimum height for your compost bin. Keep that in mind. <clears throat> All right, back at it here. Uh, Length and width are optional, but remember that the two small piles are easier to handle than one huge one. Start with a two to three inch layer of coarse materials such as corn stalks, twigs, or straw. The purpose is to let air into the bottom of the pile. If coarse material is not available, you can use a layer of sawdust or other absorbent material or omit it entirely. In any case, only one layer of coarse or absorbent material is necessary. Next, add a 3 to 6 inch layer of organic material such as garden trash or dead leaves over the <clears throat> or or dead leaves. Over this, place 2 to 3 inches of manure or a light sprinkle of synthetic fertilizer. So so in this case, they're actually using synthetic fertilizers to sort of complement the chemical process that's going on here. But you don't have to do that. You can add manure or whatever else to supply the uh, Sorry. Yeah. So place two to three inches of manure or a light sprinkle of synthetic fertilizer to supply the nitrogen needed for the breakdown process. Other good sources of nitrogen are dog and cat droppings, which side note, I don't know if I would use today's dog droppings in a, in a compost bin. Cause dog food today is not what it used to be. And there's, I, I would hesitate to put that in my, in my compost bin. Anyway, back to the book. Uh, dog and cat droppings feathers hair clippings and dried blood well that's kind of morbid the next layer should be a thin cover of topsoil or old compost at this point some gardeners cover the heap with a sprinkling of lime i don't know about that either (laughs) (laughs) repeat the process until the pile is about four feet high then shape the top of the pile into a shallow saucer or let water to let water soak in Moisture content is important for good composting. If the pile is too dry, the breakdown process slows to a halt, and if too wet, undesirable biochemical reactions take place. The pile should be about as damp as a just-squeezed sponge. In in, In dry weather, water it every few days, and in rainy weather, cover it with a tarp or plastic sheet. The pile should be turned about once a week to aerate it. This procedure speeds decomposition, combats odor, and mixes the material so that it will decay at a uniform rate. To turn compost, take apart the old pile and put it together backwards so that the material that was on the outside of the pile is in the center of the new pile. Compost is ready to use when the pile no longer gives off heat or odor when opened, and the material has turned brown and crumbly yeah so basically like so they they talk about adding a couple other chemicals like lime and, and fertilizer and stuff but that's those are just to speed the process up you don't actually have to do that you just gotta like mostly it's about getting it in a good spot, adding the right you know kinds of like I said the, the bottom layer needs to be either sticks or sawdust or something that's gonna let moisture sort of move through that pile you don't want like you don't want the bottom to be like a soupy wet you know cesspool in the bottom of your compost pile. That's not what you're after. Um, but anyway, so, and then this, this book has a ton of like drawings on how to build that stuff. And it kind of goes into more detail about different techniques and things, but yeah, but basically from what I gather, you just got to find a spot and a little container that you can keep critters out of. And you start off with, like something that'll let, you know, moisture moisture drain out of there. Start throwing your organic, you know, matter in there and then yeah, once a week you just got to when they say turn, it just you got to kind of shuffle everything up so that the decomposition rate stays even for everything you got in there. So that while it seems like it would take a long time, which it does. I mean, it takes like good composting. I mean, you're talking at least like 2 weeks probably. But that's better than just buying when I say better, it's better in the sense of like, it's better because I would feel better about it. <laughs> if, that, if that matters, I would feel better about using soil that I grew in my composting bins rather than buying a bag of chemical soaked potting soil from, you know, from Home Depot or whatever. It's like, yeah, both will work. But, and, and on the other one, if you are good about what you put in your compost bin, you're going to reduce the amount of trash that you're sending to the landfill, which is like, you know, which, which I care about. You know, I think, I think a lot of us are, I think, I think in America, we've all got like kind of an interesting, like not in my backyard attitude about landfills. And it's just the, the trash guy comes and takes the plastic bag from your kitchen and you throw it in the dumpster and then boom, it's gone. Like you don't have to think about it anymore, but it's like that stuff's all sitting in a landfill somewhere. And they just did a like a flyover study, and it turns out that like landfills are responsible for like eighty percent of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States because that stuff's just decomposing uh, in like anaerobic environments and stuff. Like, they're actually like a like our our system of landfills is a real problem. So anything you can do to like reduce the amount of stuff that you're sending to the landfill is is probably, you should probably do that. It's, it's green stuff. It's just, you got, you just put it in your compost pile outside and it'll break down. If you put it in a plastic bag and send it to the landfill, it'll be in that plastic bag 30 years from now or like however, you know, however long a heavy plastic bag stays around. It's like, it's never going to do its own, you know, it's never going to complete its breakdown process. But anyway, I digress. But yeah, just, you know, throw your kitchen scraps and stuff. Oh, so the other rule that I was going to mention, so the basic rule for what goes in your compost bin so no you don't want to put meats dairy products oils things that like don't break down so basically the good rule of thumb if it came out of the ground it can go back in like it can go back to your composting so any any of your you know green leafy stuff plant you know scraps that you have um even some breads and stuff depending on Depending on the bread and depending on what's in it, because a lot of them are loaded with like butter and stuff, and that's that's not what you want in your compost bin. But as a general rule, if it came out of the ground and wasn't like had, doesn't have a bunch of stuff added to it, if it's a, if it's plant life, it can go back in. Don't put meat in there. Don't put bones in there. Don't put heavy fats, oils, and greases and stuff in there. I don't know about things like coconut oil and stuff like that. I, I actually I don't really know about about stuff like that. I would imagine it's still not a good idea because those oils don't break down very easy. But, uh, but yeah, so just, just take out what you're, you know, if you're throwing bad salad and whatever else in the garbage and sending it to the landfill, think about just putting it, you know, in a, in a compost pile. Like they don't take a lot of space. So I think that's kind of going to be my, my project here. I don't know if it'll happen this week or not, but I should I should try to get something done on that. Get some compost going because I I live in an apartment complex right now and I'm sure that between me and all my neighbors, we could get a pretty decent compost bin going, but <clears throat> I don't know if that's going to happen, but I'll, I'll let you guys know if it does. And if I get it going, I will for sure post pictures and keep you guys in the loop. So, so yeah, so that's, that's composting. So hopefully in a few weeks, if that works out, I'll have some nice topsoil going and then I can start thinking about actually getting a garden going and getting some getting some food planted because that's sort of my that's kind of what I wanted to do with this project so that that is today's in-depth review so next what we're going to do here kind of the next segment I kind of wanted to do I got a a couple segment ideas for the podcast and if you guys well we're going to keep trying these out and if I get some feedback these are subject to change but right now got a couple of, couple of segments. And the first segment I want to do is called God bless American news, which we all know that today, the news today is just exhausting. I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on. It is just, it's more stress than it's worth at this point. And so I thought it's not all like that. Like all the things that are happening in the world, some stuff is like worth reading about and some stuff is good. And some of it is completely, like outside the realm of global politics. So story for this week, which I thought was awesome because I like, I grew up hunting and fishing and stuff. And I, I love, like, I will, I will hunt for the rest of my life. Like I like, this is, it's a huge part of my life. And something that I get really frustrated about is when governments are controlling the like some native species, some invasive species, but like herd numbers they're terrible at it because even if it is true that you need to reduce herd numbers in an area, if the government, anytime governments do it, they do like the worst job ever. They waste a bunch of money doing it. Like, like a great example right now, which is not, it's not even in the U S it's in New Zealand is the, there's a, and actually I haven't checked on this in a couple of weeks. I don't know if there's been any updates, but in New Zealand they have this, it's a goat like animal called a tar. It's T a H R I think. And they're, they're a non-native species and they're all in the mountains there in New Zealand. And they've basically – and people, people pay a lot of money to hunt these tar. And basically what New Zealand – the law – I don't know if it's passed yet or they're just kicking it around. But right now it's sort of the debate that's swirling around the tar thing is that the government of New Zealand is saying these are a non-native species. We're going to kill all of them like – through whatever, like they're basically going to pay government contractors to shoot tar out of helicopters and just leave them in the mountains. And obviously like the hunting industry is like, Hey, like, first of all, you don't need to eliminate them down to zero. And second of all, that's the even if you are, that is the most wasteful way possible to do it. Anyway, so that's a whole battle that's going on. If you're interested in that, look, look that up. But so when I found today's article, it kind of, you know, kind of made me happy. It's like in a, as happy as you can be about this sort of thing the title is grand teton launches new plan for mountain goat removal and this article is basically saying that in the in the grand you know teton national park they have a a mountain goat problem it's sim- similar to the tar issue actually that there are non-native species that sort of moved into the area um but okay so i'll just i'll read i'll read the first couple couple paragraphs here it says, Grand Teton National Park is accepting applications for volunteers to participate in a cull of non-native mountain goats within the park this fall. Chosen volunteers will conduct several shooting operations between mid-September and mid-November. The park first developed a plan to remove the mountain goats last year. That plan involved using both lethal and non-lethal means to remove the goats that pose a threat to the park's native population of bighorn sheep. The isolated population of bighorn sheep, which numbers about 100 are at risk of contracting potentially fatal bacterial diseases from the mountain goats. The goats were originally introduced into the nearby snake river range and have since migrated to the Teton range. So yeah, so the, so the native sheep are at risk from the presence of these mountain goats. So this is park rangers successfully removed 36 goats earlier this year by aerial shooting from a helicopter. That effort was quickly halted, though, due to concern from Wyoming Governor Mark Gordon, who complained that the meat meat would be wasted and that the State Wildlife Commission objected to the operation. The new plan, aimed at removing the remaining approximately 100 goats from the park, is a cooperative effort between the National Park Service and state partners, including the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. It will no longer involve aerial shooting, but instead, volunteer shooters will pursue goats from the ground so carcasses can be retrieved. The goats' meat and parts will not be kept by the volunteers, but rather may be donated or distributed to the Native American tribes. Native American tribes, food banks, or other organizations working to address hunger. Prospective volunteers must apply as teams of two to six people. Once the park receives 240 applications, it will stop accepting them. Participants for each operation will be chosen randomly from the applications submitted. That is awesome. Like that's the way to do it. If you've got a goat population that you're trying to get rid of, and really a hundred goats is like, that's not a lot, but there's only a hundred sheep that they're trying desperately to protect. So they got a, they got a hundred goats they got to get rid of. And instead of just flying around in a helicopter and picking them off and letting them rot on the the ground, they're opening it up for hunters to volunteer, voluntarily go on these awesome hunting trips inside the park, which is like guys would like, run over each other for the chance to do that. Like, that is an awesome opportunity. And it's like, so instead of having to pay government contractors to shoot these goats and leave them there, they're getting volunteers that are, like, happy to go do it. They're going to go kill these goats and then bring that meat back to and give it to, like, the tribes and other organizations that are feeding people. Like, who loses in that scenario, aside from the invasive goat species? But, like, that's how you do it, man. Like, that is that makes me happy to see like an actual like government call happening in a way that's not just outrightly wasteful. So that makes me happy. That that was an article from the wildlife society at wildlife.org. Yeah, they were, there's actually, there was some talk about a similar project in grand Canyon national park with uh, the the Buffalo herd here, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's still still going to happen or not. But anyway, but that made me really happy. It's, it's a, And we'll see how it works out, but it's, you know, that's a testament to like the modern wildlife management, you know, model and modern ideas and not just, you know, wasteful shenanigans. Uh, Anyway, so that's our God bless America news. So God bless America and God bless the state of Wyoming for figuring that out. Uh, All right. So then our closing segment here, which is something that I actually enjoyed the hell out of a lot more than I like kind of intended to, I thought, well, it'd be cool to have like a weekly quick tip, you know, like something, so, some advice from somebody that kind of knows something about whatever we're talking about that week. And, you know, something that I could just throw out there real quick, like, like a, like a hot tip or a life hack, you know, like that. And that'll be our, our segment. It turned into a half an hour conversation with my grandparents. Cause you know, I was my grandmother who is the, <clears throat> like she's my favorite person in the world. And as well, you know, her, her husband, my grandpa, they're, they're like, they're my favorite people. And I needed some gardening advice and their yard looks like a park. Like they have a little five acre place in, in central California. And it like, it literally looks like a, like a, they look like they're about to have a wedding or something there all the time. Like the, like the, garden. It's not really a garden, but like grandma's flowers and the lawn and stuff. It's always just immaculate. So I thought, okay, I'll talk to grandma and see if she's got any advice for, for this sort of thing. And boy, did she. So grandma's, you know, the quick tip from grandma Villa this week was a piece of advice that she got from her uncle. And she said it has served her well and she always sticks to it. And it was that when you are, when you're trimming hedges or bushes, right? And she has, she has all kinds of flowering, you know, plants and bushes and stuff. So she's always out there pruning stuff back and and making sure things are looking good. And she says, when you're cutting branches back, always cut at a leaf that has a nub. So apparently if you look at a lot of these flowering plants, not every leaf has this, but on, on each branch, on some of the leaves, there will be like a little nub right at the base. And that if you cut right downstream from that, so like past that nub, basically the, that branch will start new growth at that nub. But if you cut too far away from it, so let's say two, three inches out in front of that nub, that two or three inches will just die anyway. So you'll just have this chunk of dead plant in front of your, nub area and it'll actually stunt that growth but if you cut it back close enough a new shoot will come out of that and you get more flowers and more leaves and more everything else so grandma's grandma's quick tip is to always cut at the nub <laughs> when you're trimming leafy plants this led to a hilarious conversation about how papa her husband he he prunes for shape she prunes for growth and so that's why papa's not allowed to to trim grandma's Flower plants. (laughs) But uh and then Papa threw in some advice as well. He had his three favorite gardening tools, which I thought was awesome to hear him talk about. He has a little gardening trowel that's two inches wide on the one on the cutting face, and it's got like the three tines out the back. We've all seen this tool, like it's a super common tool. But that one was a gift from my uncle when he worked at the park service. And he broke, brought it back with a broken handle. And then my grandpa was like, I could fix that. Well, I ended up buying another one, broke the store-bought one. Cause it wasn't built as well, switched the two handles out. And now he's been using that gardening tool for like, I don't know, 20 something years, probably at this point as long, longer than I've been alive. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. So he's got his little two inch wide pick tool that he, that he put together. He's got his, he said a pocket saw or like a pruning saw. And a metal rake because bamboo rakes and plastic rakes just don't don't handle raking up leaves and stuff that you pulled up as good as a metal rake does. So that's that's Papa's tip. So yeah, I think I had like that conversation broke off into so many other conversations about like they they got they started talking about like they were trying to remember things about how like who was there when they did certain things and they were like where advice came from and who used to do what, what way and stuff. And it was just the whole conversation I found to just be like, I wish I had recorded it. And I wish that I could like share that whole thing with everybody. Cause it was just like, it, it's just awesome. Like I said, they're my favorite people in the world and they're just full of advice and knowledge. And, and I just, I can't get enough of that. So we, we might, you guys might get to see an interview with grandma coming up. I don't know. We'll try to, we'll try to talk her into it. But, uh, but yeah, I just, I thought that was just fantastic. Yeah, so quick tip was get yourself a, a well-built gardening trowel with a little rake on the back. Get a pocket saw and get a metal rake. And you can, you can keep up with, with the best of them, according, according to Papa Villa. And then Grandma's quick tip was when you're pruning flowers and plants and stuff, cut at the leaf that has a nub. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to eventually try that out. I had no idea that that was a thing. Like I, I know basically zero about like plant husbandry or I don't know what you call that, but, uh, but yeah, so I was really excited about that. So anyway, well that kind of wraps it up for this week's episode guys. So coming up here, our next episode will be a book review. I'm working on a book by a guy named Joel Salatin, which I'm sure some of you guys have heard of. He was on Rogan recently, actually. Um, but uh, I'm I'm kind of I'm part way through his book called "You Can Farm," and it's sort of like my desire to do to, you know for self sufficiency and stuff. It's sort of like compared to this guy, my desire to do that is like it's rookie stuff. Like I I want to be able to do things for myself. But this book is basically like how you can build a farm that is like not only self-sustaining, but like financially, you know, solvent that it'll, it actually like the books work out and he gives tons of examples and tons of, you know, tips and tricks and what to avoid the, the guy, it's, the, the guy is a wizard when it comes to this kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm really enjoying the book so far, but, but, so that's our next episode. we'll do a full, a full book review on that with some advice and stuff. So, so that's what's coming up next week. So, that's uh that's that so man we did it thank you all very much for listening and this has been episode one of the ready ready podcast thank you all very much